June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, I. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome to The Takeout. You know what the show is all about. Conversation about politics, policy, a little bit of pop culture. Voting rights, the future of the American democratic experiment, that's a big focus of this week's conversation. For those of you watching on CBSN, welcome back to the Major Garrett Dining Room. This is a twilight uh, taping of The Takeout. January 12th is the day we're doing this. Uh, The sun has already begun to set, so we've got a little bit of electrified lighting here in the house, Uh, not the natural light that I'm usually bathed with, so... Be gentle with us in judging us on our lighting arrangement here in the Major Garrett Dining Room. Our guest this week is Congresswoman Terry Sewell of the 7th District of Alabama. That's parts of Birmingham, parts of Montgomery, all of Tuscaloosa, and all of Selma. Congresswoman, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Major. It's a pleasure to be a part of this show. So, folks, I want you to know a little bit about the Congresswoman. Uh, She was, as I understand it, the first Ivy League college attendee from Selma High School, from which she graduated. She went to Princeton. Then she went to Oxford, got a political science degree there. Then she got a law degree at Harvard. While she was at Princeton, she met someone you might have heard of, Michelle Obama. While she was at Harvard, you might, she met someone you also might have heard of, Barack Obama. So, Congressman, my first question to you is, are you one of the very few Americans who knew Michelle and Barack Obama before they knew each other? Well, Major, I may very well be. Uh, <laughs> but I think you have to say that... Uh, all roads lead back to Selma, Alabama. Mm-hmm. So I feel very blessed to have grown up uh, in, a, in a small town. Everybody knows of Selma because of the bridge, but it's yep. a town of 19,000. I was the first black valedictorian of Selma High School and uh, was honored to have an opportunity to go uh, to Princeton. And yes, I met Michelle. She was actually my big sister. It wasn't because of fraternities and sororities. Um, because there were so few minority students back then, um, they had a big brother, big sister program where an upperclassman would adopt uh, a, um, an upperclassman minority student would, would adopt a freshman minority student. So I thought for sure that I would get someone from Atlanta or maybe Nashville, <laughs> but never did I think I'd get someone from the South side of Chicago, let alone, uh, Michelle Robinson. Uh, we all know her as Michelle, uh, Obama. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, you mentioned that all roads lead to Selma. You talked about the bridge for those in my audience who've heard the name, but might not know the story about that name. Please tell them. Sure. Um, Well, the famous bridge that Bloody Sunday occurred where John Lewis and 600 marchers uh, dared uh, to march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, uh, to really protest the equal right of all Americans to vote. 
Mr. Edmund Pettus is actually, uh, was actually a United States Senator, but um, most, uh, most notably, he was a Confederate general uh, and a part of the Confederacy. Uh, and in fact, I think was also one of the Ku Klux Klansmen or, or something like that. He was clearly a man of his era. And I think it's uh, poetic justice that uh, that bridge is not known for him, but for the amazing um, courage and sacrifice of John Lewis and Hosea Williams and so many known and unknown foot soldiers of the voting rights movement. And in a very practical way, Congresswoman, that bridge was an embodiment, a physical embodiment of the segregationist South that lived on after the Confederacy, true? Absolutely. You know, growing up in Selma, and I'm a third generation Selmian, my dad um, grew up in, in, uh, in segregated Selma. My grandmother grew up in segregated Selma. I grew up in integrated Selma. Um, but in the 70s is when all deliberate free speed brought integration into the public school system in Selma, Alabama. But I have to tell you, um, the bridge was the portal by which I got to go home to my mom and dad, right? Um, but you don't grow up in Selma, Alabama, and I'm a life member of the historic Brown Chapel AME Church, which is the very church that the marchers um, would have mass meetings at. And in fact, that's where they uh, started the march from Selma to Montgomery and where uh, those marchers who were bludgeoned on the bridge came back for refuge um, on Bloody Sunday. Uh, but you don't grow up in Selma without a real understanding of the very, um, you know, um, the intersection between history, uh, both Confederate history and civil rights history, it converges in Selma, Alabama. Selma, in fact, was for one day uh, the capital of the Confederacy, uh, and and there's a um, there's a um, a graveyard that has hundreds of Confederate soldiers in it. So people come back, family members come back uh, year after year, almost like they do with the pilgrimage from Selma to Montgomery to make sure. Well, the, the pilgrimage, the the the, uh, the jubilee, as we call it, right. um, John Lewis and so many others uh, would come back year after year to um, pay honor and tribute to Bloody Sunday, so that this nation would never forget the sacrifices that were made for voting rights. Right, and we're going to have a very extensive conversation about voting rights in a few minutes. But Congresswoman, I want to get your Opinion on a couple of things that have happened today, again, January 12th, that we're recording this. And I said electrified light. Look, folks, I know what it means. Incandescent light. No uh, offense to uh, Thomas Edison. I just couldn't remember incandescent when I said it the first time. So, yes, incandescent light here in the Major Garrett dining room. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is now being asked by the January 6th House Select Committee to testify. Do you believe he should and why? I absolutely believe he should. You know, I was one of the members of the House of Representatives that was actually in the gallery on January 6th. And while uh, members of uh, Congress members, including Nancy Pelosi and, and Vice President Pence were ushered out on the floor of the House, uh, there were a group of 30 of us that were stuck in the, the press gallery on that day. And I can tell you that um, I can still hear the thunderous, uh, you know, motion of uh, all of the, the, the screams and the yells um, that were occurring and and the even pounding. The, 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 the shot, yeah. And the pounding on the doors, I mean. Absolutely, absolutely. The and audio so recordings I, of that are very vivid. Absolutely. And you know, what's interesting, Major, is But why that, is Kevin McCarthy relevant to that, Congresswoman? Well, if he has anything um, uh, to do with uh, any of the conversations that were had, 
I think that we need a full reporting of what happened on January 6th to make sure that we hold uh, any and everyone accountable uh, for their actions that day. And also to make sure that we, um, you know, put in safeguards uh, so that we can make sure that this, this can never happen again. You know, we had just uh, swore an oath, those of us, uh, it was the beginning of a new Congress. Uh, so on January 3rd, we, we all stood up there and held our, um, our, our hands up and we said that we were, um, you know, we would honor the, the, the uh, Constitution and protect it against all uh, threats, uh, foreign and domestic. And I never would have thought that we would have um, a, do a domestic insurrection uh, that would occur on American soil and let alone on my watch. Um, I think that we must do everything we can uh, to bring to justice the, the perpetrators of that insurrection, but also to make sure that we never, ever have it um, have something like that again to put the safeguards um, in our democracy. I'm going to guess that you believe President Trump's actions on that day were negligent. Many Democrats have said so. Even some Republicans have said so. Do you believe that they are chargeable in a criminal context? Well, you know, I not to put my my legal hat on, but to put Please my do. lawmaking hat on. Uh, I do believe that he incited uh, those uh, Americans. He encouraged them to uh, come in and um, and and to try to to uh, to make sure that the election was not certified. And so, look, I think that it was definitely um, an action that was not becoming of a president, let alone a, a fellow American. And I believe that no one is above the law. And so um, I do believe that this president um, was culpable uh, when it comes to the actions of January 6th. Do you believe that there is anything actionable at the state level for those Republicans? We've learned this just this week, who sent to the National Archives phony counterfeit certificates of electoral slates, meaning they said, we are hereby sworn in to recognize and we certify these are the electors from our states. They were not. Do you think there is anything from a criminal perspective that could be alleged or charged in that regard? Well, I'm not really sure, but I, I can tell you that it is very disturbing um, that not only did the president incite, but fellow um, members of Congress were part of that, including one of my own fellow Alabamian um, was a part of the, the whole rally. And I do believe that, um, that state law and federal law, I think that we should you know, um, seek to, to find out exactly what happened and hold uh, folks accountable, whether it's on the federal or the state level. Very good. That is the voice of Congresswoman Terry Sewell. She is from the 7th District of Alabama. Selma, you heard a little bit about that history. Okay, when we come back for segment two of The Takeout, a deep dive, probably one of two segments on voting rights, President Biden's speech, and the like. I'm Major Garrett, back for segment two in just one second. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. 
Welcome back to The Takeout. Congresswoman Terry Sewell is joining us from her office on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Congresswoman, you flew with President Biden down to Atlanta for his speech this week on the future of voting rights. Did you have any ambivalence about going on Air Force One for that? Some in the progressive community boycotted or didn't attend. I'm not sure which word is the most applicable. Stacey Abrams wasn't there. There's been some, just I would say, uh, maybe grousing or displeasure with the emphasis the White House has placed on this issue. Did you have any ambivalence? And what was your reaction on the other side of that speech? Uh, no, I didn't have any ambivalence. You know, at the end of the day, I understand the frustration of so many of us. Look, I... I, um, I'm the author of H.R. 4, the John Robert Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Um, I introduced that bill at every successive uh, Congress since uh, 2013, the Shelby versus Holder decision. Um, this Congress, when I introduced it in August, was the first time that I introduced the bill without the late, great uh, John Lewis by my side introducing it. He um, uh, passed away. Uh, but, you know, I think that um, it's important that we put pressure on the senators to do the right thing. Um, as you know, H.R. Uh, 4 did pass the House of Representatives in sep September. Uh, it passed on a 29, uh, 219 to 213 party line vote, um, but it passed the House of Representatives and it sits languishing on the Senate side, having uh, not received the 60 votes needed to even debate H.R. Uh, 4, the John Robert uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act. And I, I for me, it was about, um, I was looking to hear from the, the president directly about the rule change, the Senate rule change that, that is necessary in order for uh, the bill to come to the Senate floor for a vote. Now that vote can be a 51 vote, right? But mm -hmm. in order to get debate, uh, one has to, what they call this cloture rule, this filibuster yes. ability. Um, and to think that what's holding up voting rights is this procedural um, um, mechanism that is a rule of the Senate, a creature of the Senate, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's overwhelming to me that that is what's holding everything up. So what I went on this trip, not, uh, well, I went on this trip because it was the president saying he was going to make a major announcement about uh, his position on voting rights and the important, he was going to state, make the case, not just to the Senate, but to uh, fellow Americans about why now, why the sense of urgency and why voter suppression and voter subversion are major threats, essential threats to our democracy. And um, I thought he did that. I was glad that he was unequivocal uh, in his um, support of doing whatever necessary uh, in the Senate to, um, to reform or change the rules so that both the John Robert Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. And by the way, the Freedom to Vote Act is actually a bill that was crafted by the senators, including Senator Manchin. So look, I think that both bills uh, are critically important uh, to our democracy in helping to make sure that all Americans have equal access to the ballot box and to make sure that the voter uh, integrity and election integrity is upheld. But you know, some progressives believe two things about the president on this issue. One, he's too late and he was too quiet for too long. The president even tried to respond to that in advance in the speech saying, I'm tired of being quiet. I'm not going to be quiet any longer. Was he too quiet for too long? And is he too late on this issue? Well, I think that, um, I think there is something, justice delayed can be justice denied. But in this case, I think that there, you know, we have an ongoing concerted effort by state legislatures across this country to impose greater um, uh, restrictions on voting. 
and to actually stop certain segments of the population from voting. And frankly, um, what these two bills will do will um, provide federal oversight for those most egregious state actors um, and also provide um, the mechanism by which we promote voting and allow people the opportunity to have um, um, to be able to access the ballot box. And so I believe that whenever we can pass it would be a, a good time to pass it. I obviously think that um, it should have um, that it's a no-brainer, frankly. You know, voting rights used to be a nonpartisan issue, Major. Mm-hmm. Um, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was reauthorized five times since yep. 1965 and under four Republican presidents, most recently in 2006 by George W. Bush. Um, and in fact, when uh, President Obama came to Selma on the 50th anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery March, um, George and uh, Laura Bush came as well. Uh, so there were two presidents sitting there that day because both were proud that on their watch uh, that they were protecting and furthering uh, voting, voting rights in America. And so the fact that it is so partisan now is baffling. But here's what I know for a fact. What I know for a fact is that if we do not do something now to slow this, um, this, the, the, this ongoing concerted effort uh, by the state legislature to make it harder to vote, that what we're doing in an effect is we are limiting the ability of uh, Americans uh, being able to have their voices heard in this democracy. And frankly, uh, that's what we're fighting for. It is actually at the very core of the soul of this democracy. It's something that President Biden spoke about. He listed it as a top priority uh, in his campaign. And, and, and frankly, yesterday, I thought he was unequivocal and very clear in his clarion call to the senators to change the Senate rules to pass H.R. 4 and, um, and the, the Freedom to Vote Act. Congresswoman, as you sat there in Atlanta listening to the president, was there any part of you who thought, that thought rather, the president should have given that speech three months ago? I would have loved to have, for him to have given that speech three months ago. Uh, but the reality is I was honored to be there uh, yesterday when he did give the speech. Um, and I think that we have to remember that the, that the halls of Congress, rarely does change happen, just happen in those halls of Congress. Rather, uh, change bubbles up from grassroots activism. And I am, um, you know, I'm proud of the fact that so many um, young people and um, civil rights and voting rights activists, people, first time activism are galvanizing around this country, around the issue of voting rights, because it is important. And, you know, every time I think about uh, being discouraged at this point. I have to remember what John Lewis or what, uh, you know, uh, Hosea Williams or um, or Diane Nash must have thought. Um, you know, these are people who had tremendous faith that their sacrifice was worth it. And that at some point, their um, cries of, 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 of equality and justice for all would be heard. And that this democracy would, would actually um, stand up to the ideals of our constitution of justice and equality and what faith they must have had. And frankly, Major, I have to have that faith. We have to have that faith that ultimately this democracy, the experiment in democracy, um, that we as Americans are resilient and that we will um, ultimately get there. And so I, you know, thank God we are a, we're constantly um, in search of that, that, that more perfect union because at the end of the day, you know, the constitution had me as three fourths of an individual. And now I get to sit as a member of Congress and representing the state of Alabama as its first black uh, uh, congresswoman. 
A long journey indeed. Congressman, you mentioned the uh, high level of interest and activism at the grassroots level. The implications for that grassroots activism if this stalls and remains stalled for this year for Democrats seeking re-election in the midterms? I hope that um, that activism will be sustained. And I do know that there are so many people who have been laboring and continue to, to you know, will continue to labor uh, on the importance of voting and getting out there and getting people registered to vote. If one person who wants to register is turned away, that to me gets to the heart of the of voter integrity. Um, so I, I, you know, I know that. But you um, fear that you fear there will be some level of either dismay or displeasure or opting out, maybe. Well, I think that uh, voter apathy is obviously of great concern uh, for for me and, and for uh, and for this country generally. But I also think that um, if the 2020 election told us anything is that your vote does matter. It does count. Think about all those folks in Georgia who waited in those long lines. Uh, had they thought that their vote didn't count, we wouldn't have a Biden administration. We wouldn't have two senators from Georgia one Jewish and one black we would have never thought that that would happen in our lifetime. And yet here we are. So you, you, the vote is not, you know, John Lewis would say often that the, the, the vote is sacred. It's, um, it is the most fundamental uh, part of a tool in our democracy. The most fundamental nonviolent tool in our democracy is what he would say. And, you know, I, I often close my eyes and just because John was so prophetic in what he would say, he said it often enough. He said that if you see something uh, that's not right or not just that we have a moral obligation to do something about it. And I hope that this activism that we're seeing, this groundswell is not just uh, deflated by the actions of one person, one senator, two senators. Rather, this is a, mo- this is a movement. It is a movement um, towards a more perfect union. And that the only a- way that this country gets to get there is if ordinary Americans have the audacity to make this country live up to its ideals. Um, of equality and justice. That is the voice of Congresswoman Terry Sewell, 7th District of Alabama. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout on the other side of this break. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. You know, we're talking a lot about voting rights this week because next week will be the recognition of federal holiday, Martin Luther King Day. And the Senate is in the throes of an intense conversation, not only about its rules, but about the trajectory of two pieces of legislation. Congresswoman Terry Sewell is our special guest. She's talked about both of them. Before we get to those, Congresswoman, I just want to ask you a question that is on the minds, I suspect, of some members of my audience, not those who deny what happened in the 2020 election, but who are Republicans who would say, well, Congressman, I hear you about these state legislatures, but they were elected in 2020. They reflect the will of the people in that state. If the legislatures at that state, whatever it is, are Republican, the voters decided that. The Constitution defers in great number of ways to states, time, manner, and place for elections. 
It went through the legislative process. Why is that unconstitutional? Why is that so radical? If it is reflective, they would argue. I'm not arguing. I'm just saying what they would say. Why is that radical if, they, if that reflects, A, the people who were elected to the state legislature and they're majority Republicans? It went through the process and they did what the Constitution said, matter, time, and place. You know, the Constitution does give um, states great latitude when it comes to their elections. Uh, but there is also a fundamental right to vote. And if that uh, vote is obstructed or abridged, uh, especially because of race, if the effect of that law is to limit the ability of the vote based on race or gender, um, then that is unconstitutional. And that is when federal oversight is needed. Major, you know, we're not talking about bringing back preclearance um, for every uh, state. And, we'll, and we're going to get to the definition of preclearance in just one second, but I'm glad you mentioned it. Yes. Well, we're not, we're not, uh, what I'm saying is uh, not every state's uh, actions are egregious, but if a, a state has had um, adjudicated violations of the constitution where the laws that they have, um, that they have uh, instituted um, have a direct or indirect, you know, whether it's, whether it was purposeful or not, if the effect of it was to deny the right to vote for a black person against the 15th amendment, or a woman, the 19th Amendment, then those are unconstitutional. And so what the John Robert Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act would do would restore the full protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The right. 1965 Act um, not only um, gave a, a right uh, to, uh, to go to court um, to seek to overturn um, discriminatory voting right laws, it also had a special provision that allowed um, for um, certain states that have had a history of voter yes. discrimination to have to pre-clear um, exactly. those voting laws before they came into effect. It was a prophylactic uh, right. measure that on the front end would prevent uh, discriminatory voting laws from coming into effect. Right. And for those in the audience who want to look it up, those are sections four and five of the Voting Rights Act and Shelby County, the Supreme Court decision that Congresswoman Terry Sewell referred to earlier, is the case in which those Section 4 was almost completely struck down, and Section 5 was basically nullified because when you take away Section 4, Section 5 doesn't really have the same teeth or application. If I understand that correctly, you're the lawyer here, uh, Congressman. No, that's I'm right. Not. That's why we call it HR 4. Because right. it's named, what we're doing is we're, re, we're putting back a new Section 4 of the Voting right. Rights Act, and that's a new modern day formula. We're not looking back to penalize states like Alabama or Mississippi for what they did in the 40s and 50s. What um, the, the, the current bill, uh, that um, that that I am the lead sponsor of, it would look 25 years and look at states' uh, actions over the last 25 years, 1995 going forward. And if there have been a number of violations of voter discrimination, then perhaps those states should come have to have their laws pre-cleared for a certain period of time. And, you know, and there's obviously ways to, to opt out and, and the like. And as I understand it, Congresswoman, that 25-year data set is exactly what the Supreme Court said was missing when it nullified Section 4. It said basically the law still was rooted in a sense of what had gone wrong so terribly, terribly wrong in the South 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and that there needed to be a new and more modern data set about whatever was happening at the state level that needed preclearance now, correct? That's right. And you know, when you look back at, uh, you know, 1995 and going forward, when you see states, not just southern states, I mean, look at South uh, North Dakota. They had a they had a uh, uh, that state le legislature 
actually had in 2018 passed a law that said in order to register to vote, you had to have a physical address. Now, on the outset, that looks like it's, you know, uh, that that should not be something that's intentionally discriminatory. But when you dig a little deeper and you realize that in Indian country on, on tribal right. lands, uh, that most of them have P.O. boxes and not physical addresses, you're stopping a whole host of people from being able to register to vote. And so, um, you know, I often tell my, my my constituents who come up to me and say, look, uh, a photo ID, uh, what, what's the big deal? Uh, you have to show your ID to, to do all kinds of things. And I polls say very well, that polls very well, Congresswoman, you know that it polls like 70 percent. Absolutely. In poll and after poll I, after poll. Yeah. What I say to that, though, Major, is that when you uh, uh, an ID of in and of itself is not what I am saying is discriminatory. Frankly, you have to be able to shape, you know, prove who you are on that uh, on that voter roll in order to get that ballot. That's fine. But when when states are picking winners and losers based on the types of IDs that they are requiring, if you allow a hunting license but don't allow a university student ID, you're making a you're making a decision about which uh, which voters are more likely to vote, uh, have an easier time getting to the ballot box than the other. And what I'm saying is, we have to level the playing field. Um, you know, my dad, uh, when, uh, up until he passed away, um, he voted with a validly issued federal ID. It was called a Social Security card, and every American has one. Um, and the state of Alabama, up until 2014, right after the Shelby versus Holder decision, used to allow, um, you know, Social Security cards, uh, utility bills that showed the address of where you lived. As long as that matched up, you got your ballot. I am not saying that people don't have to prove who they are. I'm saying we should not make it hard to prove that you are a, a registered voter and that you have, you know, you you should have a ballot. That's, right. That's and, if an, and if a utility address and bill works at the DMV, it ought to work at the voter registration. Absolutely. Understood. Um, as you well know, in that Supreme Court case uh, where Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion, he cited your hometown. He did. And, you know, I cited your hometown and said there's a black mayor of Selma. So the problem's not solved in in totality, but it's solved enough that we can get rid of this. And that's absolutely not true. Um, You know, yes, in 2013, we not only had a black mayor in the city of Selma, we had an African-American who was the president of the United States. Um, But simply saying that those that that because one election elected a person of color doesn't mean that there are not systemic um, laws that make it harder for certain segments of the population to vote. And that, especially if it's an abridgment of race or gender, is unconstitutional. And, you know, sitting there, um, I had the opportunity to sit next to John Lewis uh, at the Supreme Court during oral argument for Shelby versus Holder. Um, and I have to tell you, to sit next to a man who um, was willing to give his life for the unfettered right to vote of all Americans um, and to see how the Supreme Court was, um, you know, um, purposefully, I thought, and some certain of the jurists obviously had made up their mind about the Voting Rights Act um, and by the targeted questions they were asking and the uh, and not allowing the, uh, the person who was uh, defending it to really, you know, give explanations was really heartfelt. And to see his face when the when the decision was rendered was also another um, heartbreaking moment for me. But what I know for a fact is that those of us who are beneficiaries of their sacrifice owe more to them than just celebration of a holiday. So yes, we're about to have Martin Luther King's birthday on Monday, but the reality is um, that we have to do more 
than just celebrate his Martin Luther King's birthday. If we're about um, you know, preserving and fostering their legacy, that we have to be about the action of, uh, of, of ensuring the kinds of rights that they were willing to die for. And voting rights is fundamental to this democracy. And if one person who has a right to vote is turned away because they uh, received a bottle of water from someone who was trying to be nice, seems to me those kinds of state laws are so pernicious and so targeted and focused at, um, at, at getting at the elderly or the disabled or those who may have had to work and had to come to the line you know, late that afternoon, seems to me we should be making it easier to vote. And I often say, what are you so afraid of? I ask my elected officials who have changed their mind, because when you think about the fact that the last time the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized, it was 2006. That right. wasn't long ago, Major. Right. That was in our lifetime. Yes. We've seen the, the we've it's seen old battles yes. become new again. Right. I'm going to stop you on that thought right there, Congressman, because I need to go to break. When we come back, I'm going to ask the Congresswoman Terry Sewell of 7th District of Alabama about some things that Brad Raffensperger, the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, said on this program just last week. When we come back, segment four, The Takeout. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Welcome back for those watching on CBSN to the Major Garrett Dining Room. Terry Sewell's our special guest this week, Democratic Congresswoman, 7th District of Alabama. So on this program last week, uh, Brad Raffensperger was on an interview I did with him several weeks ago <clears throat> for a very long piece that showed up on uh, January 2nd on CBS Sunday Morning. And he talked about a couple of things. Uh, and he talked about this water issue because it's a very big part of the new Georgia law. And he said, look, we're not opposed to people handing water out to those standing in line, voters standing in line. But what was happening, and these are his words, not mine, Congressman, but I want you to respond to them, is that people wearing electioneering garb were handing out the water and the food, which is a violation of the understanding, the spirit of the, the law before we changed it to disallow it, and a, a, a violation of electioneering. You can't be that close and you can't have, you know, they weren't saying anything, but they were wearing T-shirts and the like, which was interpreted as a violation of the spirit and the actual meaning of the law. He said that's why that provision was placed in the new law. No water and food to people standing in line. I'd like to get your reaction. You know, if that's what he was trying, if they were actually trying to stop, um, you know, people from influencing votes by those, by the garb that they wear, then they should have made that as, they should have directly said that in the law. Um, because what they're doing is uh, not only getting people who are wearing. You can clarify that. You can clarify that. Yeah, they could totally have clarified that. And they did not. Uh, the law was uh, very broad. And so obviously you see, you see a deeper intent. Absolutely. I mean, there were would have, there, there are ways to have carved out that law to get at what he was talking about. I mean, it makes sense when you have to stand a certain amount of feet away from the from the polling station uh, and controlling uh, that. But uh, but but when when you're talking about all bottles of water, whoever gives it, and that's how broad uh, the the um, the provision in Georgia 
uh, is written, um, it obviously has, I would say, intentional uh, consequences, but he would probably say unintended consequences of stopping those from providing people who need water who are not wearing uh, electioneering outfits. As you well know, uh, Secretary of State uh, Raffensperger stood in the breach in Georgia up against uh, rather considerable pressure from the President of the United States and uh, his legal team. And I imagine you think that was a good thing. That was the right and proper thing to do. You probably don't agree with the other things that he says uh, in Georgia. He said to me, and this was part of our conversation, it was on the show last week, that Stacey Abrams in Georgia really started and fired the first salvo in trying to undermine faith and confidence in elections by saying she lost to the governor who won, Brian Kemp, because of voter suppression. She would not concede. And her rhetoric... Again, Brad Raffensperger's words, not mine, under, began to undermine confidence in elections in Georgia, and that precipitated and egged on Republicans who came to doubt it in 2020. I'd like your reaction to that. You know, I think that it's really um, interesting that he would make that c- comparison with um, Stacey Abrams. Some of us to the, on the left would say, or in the center, would say that uh, President Trump did exactly the same thing in undermining our, uh, our confidence uh, in this democracy by saying that the 2020 presidential election was somehow, uh, you, know, the, you know, not legitimate. And therefore- uh, Rigged, stolen, that th- theory, yeah. et cetera. You know, yes. I, I, here's, here's my, my thought about that, Major. And I, I really, you know, um, I don't want to dwell on the past. I want to talk about the future. And the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is that um, every election is important, whether it's a state election, a local election, or a federal election. And I believe um, with every fiber of my being, having sat at the foot of John Lewis, um, been blessed to not only uh, call him colleague, but a mentor, um, that you know every American has that right. Uh, if you're an American, you're 18 years old, you have the right to vote. And to exercise that right to vote should be something that we as elected officials should be trying to make easier, not harder. Um, in this great country, we as elected officials should not be choosing who our constituents are. Rather, our constituents should be choosing who their elected officials are. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe with every fiber of my being that um, we will um, get to a place in this country where we're not trying to pit one, uh, you know, one against another. I-, I get that my Republican colleagues see that by suppressing the vote, by limiting who can go to the polls, that somehow they can change elections. And I, I, I disagree fundamentally with the thought that somehow um, it's, uh, the voter fraud is a problem. Um, study after study, and the Brennan Center study on, onward, have found that, um, that most elections are not, I mean, there's a, a minuscule possibility of, of fraud. And in fact, we, we saw it being litigated across this nation, the 2020 presidential election, um, with no evidence of fraud. And so I, I think at this point, we, I, I mean, I, I I think that it's important that the Senate pass um, whatever legislation they need to pass in order to get over this Senate uh, rule and pass H.R. 4, the John Robert Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom of Vote Act now. Um, I I believe that that is what um, what we need is um, is, 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 is an opportunity for people to be able to go and vote. Understood. And uh, quite obviously, you represent the good people of the 7th District of Alabama. You do not represent the people of New York City, but there's a conversation going on in New York City. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts one way or the other about this conversation in New York City, which is 
whether non-citizens should be allowed to vote in local elections in that city. There are those on the Republican slash conservative side who say that among Democratic progressives, there are no limits to who should have the franchise from their point of view. They don't want to live. Anyone can vote, anyone at all. And I don't apply that to you at all. I'm just curious. Do you have any thoughts about whether or not non-citizens in any jurisdiction in this country should have the right to vote? Well, I think that, um, you know, I don't want to opine about about New York, but I can tell you in the state of Alabama um, and especially in my district, um, I not only represent the people who are there, I carry with me the legacy of those amazing people who had the temerity and the audacity to push back against uh, the hatred and fear uh, that was being perpetrated in the 60s and 70s and that, uh, that, uh, that stopped the ability of them as American citizens to have the equal right to vote. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, if John were here, John thinks that anyone who is in America being controlled by, um, you know, uh, the laws of that city or that state should have an equal right to, to have a voice in saying what should be done. Um, I don't want to get into that debate. I'm just going to simply say that the right to vote is so fundamental to who we are as Americans that every American should have the uh, equal right to get to that. To the Real quick, we've got about less than a minute. Uh, some have said if the Senate cannot get the other two pieces of legislation you described across the finish line, it should fall back and do the do amendments to the Electoral Vote Act. Do you agree? Well, I think that the Electoral Vote Act, which would change the Electoral College, have Electoral College reform, right? That is, to me, um, uh, you know, a diversion tactic. Um, I, I think that what we have to do is focus on the access issues and the federal oversight issue. And both, um, both of the bills that are currently being considered would do that. The Freedom to Vote Act would deal with access and uh, uh, the John Robert Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act would do with enforceability and federal oversight. So Understood. it's guardrails and access. Those are the issues. And I hope um, that we get to the place where the senators will, um, will, will vote in favor of getting both of those uh, to, the, to the president's desk. That is the voice of Congresswoman Terry Sewell, the 7th District of Alabama. She's been our special guest this week. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. Please join us again next week. For those listening on podcast platforms and watching on CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. See you next week. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I am, of course, Major Garrett. Welcome back to the Major Garrett Dining Room. Incandescent lighting in this Twilight episode of The Takeout. January 12th is our recording date. Terry Sewell, Congresswoman, 7th District of Alabama is our special guest. So, Congresswoman, we did a lot of deep diving, which I love to do. I love to nerd out. My audience travels along that nerdy road with me. So, God love you, everyone. However you find the show, radio, podcast, CBSN. Well, well, let's take let's just take a breath for a second and just like lighten it up a second because we have. I wish we, I were truly in your dining room, Major. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps we'd have a glass of wine right now. I could use so much more than that, Congressman. Well, I, but I digress. Um, so uh, we have three threshold questions uh, that we ask every single guest on the show. We're in our fifth year, Congressman. And the audience loves the answers because it really gives a chance to get to know the guests we have even better than they already have come to know them. So. Take these questions in whichever order you prefer. Uh, 
most influential book or one of the most influential books in your life, meaning it shaped your attitudes, it shaped your emotions, it shaped your worldview, uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your all-time favorite movies. And uh, if you're in the great state of Alabama and you're on a long drive or you're flying back to your district or taking a long overseas flight and you're really going to groove on your music, your best music, what's the most likely to be by artist or genre? Okay. So... Music I like to groove with is probably R&B. My favorite are uh, the Staple Singers, so I'll take you there. Mavis, my song. Yeah. <laughs> it gets me. It gets you me. Cannot get, you cannot. You just cannot get any better than Mavis. You just can't. I know she's awesome. Um, so I'll take you there as my as my song. Um, the book that's most influential to me. Um, um, I wrote a paper in high school about Shirley Chisholm, Unbought and Unbossed, was named her biography, and I. I think that in reading that book gave me an insight into the possibilities of what a little black girl from Selma, Alabama could be. Um, the fact that I would then grow up and be the first African-American woman from Alabama to walk the halls of Congress, I thought uh, was poetic justice, but her story is such an inspiration. Um, Take 15 seconds or, or more to tell my audience who may not remember, who may, may be too young to remember who Shirley, Shirley Chisholm was. Shirley Chisholm um, uh, was the first African-American woman uh, to walk the halls of Congress, to be elected from the state of New York. She was elected from New York uh, and was an amazing uh, role model for all, uh, all, all people, but definitely people of color and women uh, in particular. So she was the first Black woman, uh, first Black congresswoman in, in the United States. Um, so her book, Unbossed, was probably the most influential. Um, my favorite book probably is um, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, who is a, a great, my mom was a librarian, so I could talk library books all day long. <laughs> exactly. um, and then what was the other question? Movie. Oh, movie. Um, oh, goodness, goodness, goodness. I don't know. And um, one, way, one way to think about a congresswoman is if you're at home and you're uh, either talking to your remote, which I, I gather people do this day, these days. I don't. I still, you know plod along with, with uh, my uh, opposable thumbs. But I guess if you're talking into your remote or using it the conventional way that I grew up using it, and you see the movie, you, you, you screech to a halt and you say, I'm just watching. I'll pick it up wherever it is. That's one way to think about the answer to the favorite movie question. Oh, my God. Um, the Color Purple. Right. I love okay. The Color Purple. <laughs> I, I could probably recite all of uh, yes. Whoopi Robert's lines in that movie. <laughs> but... Uh, well, it depends on what I'm in the mood for. I'm always sure. a, a cheerjerker breaches if I'm uh, Yeah, <laughs> I'm of like course, it. of course. While, while I have you, uh, because uh, we lost a great in the filmmaking industry very recently, Sidney Poitier passed away. And, you know, you don't have to scratch too deep. At the time, he was an actor that there was some conversation in the black community about, is he too... Is he as a black person in too white a role or is he uh, a black actor for white people or is he a black actor for black people? And I'm not asking you to resolve that debate. Or I'm just curious if you had any perspective on it then or now. Well, Sidney Poitier, to serve with love is my favorite. And we are blessed to have had him as an amazing actor, irrespective of his uh, color of his skin. Um, he was an amazing individual, uh, humanitarian, uh, philanthropist, um, just a beautiful person inside and out. And um, I think that we are a better uh, nation, a, a better, um, we definitely have a better uh, movies because uh, he lived. So yes. hats off to Sidney Poitier. To Sir With Love, The Defiant Ones, In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Yes. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, 
It is a, a tremendous career of accomplishment. As he said late in his career, you, many of your questions he was talking to the press he was interviewing are about my Negroness. Why don't you ask me questions about me as an artist, as a man, as an American, as everything else I am in this world? And, Great. And you, said it, you said it best. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I think that there's so much more that unites us and divides us uh, when it comes to uh, being an American and, and actually being a, a, a person of this world. Um, and so I think that um, what I wish for my constituents, and I often say, um, you know, is just the opportunity to see um, the commonality that we have as a people. Um, and uh, I think that that's, that beautiful tapestry that is America is uh, strengthened by our diversity. Congressman, it's been a pleasure. Congressman Terry, Congresswoman Terry Sewell, the 7th District of Alabama. Thanks so much for being with us. That's it on The Takeout. I'll take a special folks. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.